and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to reflect and look back on some of the football musings for 2023 with no other than Liam Ferm of The Athletic. Liam, a big warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much and an absolute pleasure. Liam, I believe uh, you're back for the hat-trick appearance. Yes, yeah, no, the... Hopefully there's a that's a milestone to go up on the wall. Um a bit like a Lords with, with Test cricket and the, the Fifers and the, the hundreds. <laughs> Hopefully it's the beginning of a long, <laughs> long relationship with the podcast. Mm. But anyways, Liam, um, you know I'm a big fan of yours. Uh obviously speaking of fandoms, you're a big Brighton fan. Picking up where we left off in October 2022, certain Roberto de Zerbi walks into the building at the Amex Stadium. He's seen mm. outside has captivated us in 2023. How has that been to watch as a fan? Uh, there's been sort of every single emotion, I guess, you, you could possibly get. I mean, f- for the most part, it's been it's been really exciting. I guess you can sort of split that between this season. It's been probably a bit more exciting, maybe for the neutral, because there's been goals at both ends. They've... Uh, barring the, the Arsenal game, they'd scored and conceded in every single Premier League game, which is... You know, quite an incredible feat sometimes, and that had been from conceding, you know, really good goals. Maybe some errors playing out from the back. They had to, to juggle sort of fitness problems and, and injuries. But the first sort of I suppose six months of the year, um, which is a team really coming together. Which I, I think, excuse me, even the most optimistic Brighton fan probably didn't quite expect it. Will happen very quickly. Of look, what was a young team. And an experienced team, Moises Caicedo in his first full Premier League season, um, Cody Matoma in his first Premier League season as well, like Evan Ferguson coming through. And I've got the same with, with Jack Hinshelwood. I believe it's it's a record number of goals this calendar year for a team uh, in terms of goals scored by teenagers. Brighton have also, they've hit 100 goals this calendar year, which uh, is only the, sort of the third or fourth instance of a non-Big Six team doing that uh, in Premier League history. And that's, sorry, across all competitions. And to have sort of the, the Europa League within that and they they worked so hard for that and had a good cup run as well alongside that. Got to got to the semi-finals and, and were only beaten on penalties by Manchester United. Um yeah, they've they've become a lot more tactically flexible. And that's been a real big thing in the Europa League where, you know, they, they didn't win for the first two games. They they lost the first game at home to uh, AK Athens and then were two 0 down at half time against Marseille. And, and Lewis Dunk spoke recently about that being a turning point. They pulled it back to two all. Joao Pedro equalised with a late penalty. Uh, and from then, they didn't concede a goal in you know the final four games or four and a half games, if you like, nine halves of European football, which to go to Athens, uh, to go to Amsterdam and to host Marseille, you know, sure, there's question marks over maybe the quality of these teams currently compared to their history. But um, yeah, De Zerbi has found a few ways to be a bit more flexible, not just be sort of that build up uh, or the pattern based coach, you know, not always baiting the press so high. Sometimes now when teams sit off, which has been the trend, see West Ham, see Everton, it's been it's been finding a way uh, against the deeper block. And that's one thing you spoke about there, tactically flexible. And indeed, you spoke about Brighton being the neutrals favourite team to watch. Indeed, they're one of mine for sure. The one thing I've noticed amongst the Zerbies team this year as well, amongst all the success, there's been a heavy amount of rotation as necessitated by Europa League requirements and so on and so forth. What have been some of the key principles of play behind the Zerbies system or style of play, you could say, this season? Well, I mean, look, it's it's still really ball dominant. It's still really possession heavy. It wants to attack first. Um, 
the, the pressing stayed high. I've seen quite a few more, I think, sort of out to win pressing movements or, or runs from from wingers in particular, where they're sort of starting their run wide to cut off stuff to to the fullbacks. Um, so yeah, he's, he often speaks about, he says sort of my philosophy, my DNA, you know, the, the style of play that these are ways that he feels, I think, almost compelled to play or that, you know, he doesn't know any other way. He, he was a number 10 as a player. Um, so it's still a case of, dominate the ball, move the opposition. Um, it just tends to be, I think, a little bit more now a case of it's, you know, Moises Caicedo and Alexis McAllister were the the two, you know, the double pivot, the two central midfielders in, I think, something like 70% of De Zerbi's games last season. And to not have either of them now, he's tried sort of Gilmore and Gross as his primary sort of, you know, double pivot, but there are different, two very different sort of more technical players, maybe not quite as physical, Um so he's had to sort of rely on sort of the number 10s a bit more. Um, he's lost Sonny March out wide on the right. Simon Adingra offers, offers a different profile as a right footer off the right. Um, and he started moving the fullbacks at least one, sometimes two, depends on the profile. We've seen it with Jack Hinshawood, who's another academy graduate recently, sort of moving in, trying to manipulate the block. Um, but look, it's it's still front-footed. It's still about goals and dominating the ball. If people want some examples, there's there's great goals there. The recent winner against Marseille, which saw on top of the Europa League group, came off a lovely passing move. Um and then both the goals were really a home to Ajax in the Tuna win. And uh, Simon Odingra's goal, uh, the second goal of the away win over Ajax. Again, these phenomenal moves where it's still manipulate the opposition to find the spare man. And just sometimes the, the structure, I guess, is a little less rigid than it was last season. And I would say kind of what the coaching had on a huge part of that too. Huge part of that success has been the box midfield, which Brighton have deployed at numerous stages throughout the source of the campaign. But... Of course, you know, it, having the box midfield necessitates really, it's based on a search of control in game. Mm. And it's a system which we've seen adopted with various success up and down through the leagues in the UK, most pertinently. We've seen the likes of Aston Villa and Unai Emery, Mikel Arteta delve into it this season with Arsenal. Liverpool actually have been using it too, not only Brighton, but we've seen also Ipswich and Leicester in the Championship. Why do you think this formation, or not formation, but just the box midfield mm. in of itself has taken on? such rapidly Liam. yeah it's become a widespread thing i recall uh middlesbrough as well under michael carrick doing this um i mean one it, it often suits the the profile of players that you get i think we're probably seeing a bit of a fallout from a really heavy wing backs trend sort of in the the post antonio conte sort of chelsea 1617 i think it was um sort of era where you've got a lot of really sort of good attacking minded fullbacks who you maybe don't want in deeper defensive positions if they're not as good, or you just want them further forward because they might be really good in the final third and that's where you want to then put them. Um, so I think Middlesbrough had Ryan Giles, who was really pushing forward for them um, and maybe had some defensive question marks, but was so creative, ended up as I think the championship's top assister or he was up there last season. Um, so I, I guess it's ironically not always about the profiles of the midfielders. Sometimes it can be, well, I want to get a certain wide player into a wide position I think for Arteta and Guardiola, it's actually ironically quite defensive, despite them dominating the ball. Um, I think Arteta might be on record as saying Guardiola is the most defensive manager in the league, and he's probably pushing him close to that title now. Um, it, it's a, it's a case of wanting to control the middle because it's the most dangerous part of the pitch. Um, and I, I wrote a piece that's on the site if people want to go back and find it. This was earlier in the season where the top four were... Uh, Manchester City, Arsenal, Tottenham and Liverpool and all four had or were using a, a box midfield um, but in four sort of very different ways so I noticed that, or well, sorry, at least playing their fullbacks inside because for Spurs it's not really 
doesn't really become a box because they tend to have a you know a single pivot, some more advanced eights that play further upfield, and they can bring both of their fullbacks inside. Um, and that I guess is has been the different trend because having done a level of research, not I'm far far from an expert on sort of uh, previous areas of football, but knowing you know the origins of the, of the WM uh, of Hungary in the in the nineteen fifties and um of arsenal uh of, of generations gone that you know this isn't a a new concept of how, how you're organizing the players what i think is different is you look at how the game speed has evolved the passes per minute um how fast the ball travels the amount of ball and play time this is a newer trend that we've seen in this sort of format of football where it's become really athletic so i guess it's the case of Probably as part of a counter-pressing thing, wanting players in central positions. I think even for Liverpool, sometimes it's as straightforward as Trent Alexander-Arnold is our, is our best creative passer. So let's put him in the middle of the pitch where, because he's so good over long range and long distances, now if you put him in the middle, you've opened up chips in behind to the left and to the right. You've opened up through balls. Um, whereas if he's just a, a, a right back or he's, he's out wide on the right-hand side, you limit his passing range a little bit more. Whereas for Arsenal, I see it a lot more. And Zinchenko said this, I think, to Rio Ferdinand, where if he pulls inside into midfield, it's to take a player with him. Because a lot of teams, and I'm sure we'll discuss this, tend to press man for man now, or especially do when the ball goes one side and they, they lock on. So if you step inside, either it's winger doesn't go with you. OK, we'll pop it in. I'm on the half turn and we're out with through the press. Or likely he does come with you. And he says, then, yeah, you can open it up, pop it out wide to, to Martinelli because Arsenal's team is built around having Martinelli in and because Saka is real big wide threats and get them 1v1, that's that's his job done. So it's they can vary in really different ways, uh, but it always comes down to, and it has to, as you'll know more than anyone as, as a coach, it has to come down to the profiles of the players that you've got because you need to maximise those to, to win your games. I think partly, to, yeah, I mean, obviously a huge part of the equation is massively predicated on obviously the players at your disposal, Liam, but also it's, I think it's haste for the style of play that you want. And it's funny that you touch upon Arteta and Guardiola looking at this from a defensive point of view because I genuinely think they create the box because they want to have that plus one midfield for transitional purposes more so mm -hmm. than offensive reasons. But if, again, you've touched upon it there. The reason why Liverpool may play the box is to have a certain player facing forward between the lines. Could be a Trent Alexander-Arnold. Other teams mm -hmm. like Aston Villa, they'll play the box midfield because you notice they want key players or key spaces arrive in too so it's very interesting to see how that's evolved yeah i think that's that's the job at least i sort of tried to give to myself now is is looking just beyond um you know what does the shape look like and it's the case of who's doing what why are they doing it and then it's for me it's why do i think they might be doing it doing it like that uh because it can be very easy to sort of compare especially statistically and almost take the humanity out of it a little bit and go look at the end of the day you can get very different players in, in different positions or different roles in the team. Um, I think Villa are a great example because it also helps them having sort of number 10s or, or players that play more more centrally because they've got one of the best channel runners in, in Ollie Watkins and Musa Diaby is another player that can really explode out wide and, and go wide 1v1 or 1v2. So you don't really need wingers going in behind all the time or to go 1v1 because if your wingers going 1v1 out wide, well, then you don't really need a, a number nine to run through like that. So I guess it's without sounding really uh, surface level here, it, it's really just a case and it makes sense of teams building their teams around their best players. And for some teams that then works of we can get our best player into more creative positions or as you say, we can overload and maybe it's a more stylistic thing because how we want to play, okay, we might give the ball up. So we're going to need to counter press. We've got players in position to foul. Um, and it's just, 
it's as straightforward as that. Um, and I guess you have to just have to remember the the human side of it sometimes and go, okay, these players might have very different profiles for for different reasons. Um, so that's that's been the focus for me. Yeah, and it's interesting too. You speak about the human side because I'd have to say now. Well, for the first half of this Premier League season, I've never noticed a year that we've just had now, or season that we've had thus far, where the quality gap has been as narrow. And I think it's based on, you could have this from a variety of different ways too. You could have Unai Emery going into Aston Villa with clear references, clear details mm-hmm. in the first full season there at the club. We've seen how tremendous they've been this season. You'd see an Ange Postacoglu, who's had the cart, the horse, and everything thrown at him with Harry Kane's exit. I believe the yep. fourth in the league, some of the references they have. It's absolutely stunning. We spoke about Brighton. It's an exciting time to be a fan. It really is. And there's, I, I'm hoping there's sort of growing tactical diversity too. I think one of my favourite things is is a clash of styles and it's not just lots of teams sort of wanting to, to play a certain way. I, I fear that, and this is maybe a thing with a, an emerging generation of, of English coaches now, ones that have sort of just finished playing that, a lot of them seem to desire, and I wonder if it's because of you know recent managerial influences. I, I found as well that a lot of them, a lot of the English players of this generation, were sort of former central midfielders and coaches. Very understandably, want to play or have their teams play either how they played when they were a player or how the teams they were in played. Um, so I guess that's that's shaped you know what what they're liking is what they're used to, um, and you you do then get a lot of this desire for a very Eurocentric model of, of positional play where it's okay. It's that three, two, five, it's the box midfield and it's wanting to control possession. You know, I, I always see that thing of clubs saying, Oh, we, we've got a philosophy of how we want to play. And I don't think I've ever read a philosophy that wasn't high possession and dominate control games and then high press, win it back at the first opportunity. I don't feel like I ever read a style of play that goes low block. We'll play on the counter. Um, so I think that that's where it can be most exciting. But at, at the same time, I do enjoy the games where, you know, teams will go toe to toe and you'll get, uh, you know, I think at either end of the spectrum, either a real sort of matchup where they're going to exploit each other's weaknesses or where you go, this could just be a, you know, a game for the ages. I remember Brighton, Manchester City, I think back just after City had won the title and in fairness, we're, we're probably still drunk, but it was a great game because Brighton had sealed Europe, City were just prepping for the Champions League final and it was a Premier League game that didn't really have anything riding on it and it was just two teams that, you know, were still playing out, trying to build through, pressing high and it's it was just like a love of the game situation. It was, it was very pure. Um, so I realize I've digressed really from, from the original question, but I think that's, that's the best part of the, the pulling power that the Premier League has. I mean, look, I, I watched quite a bit of Liga and, and Will Stilwell-Rams was heavily linked with a Sunderland job, which I mean, no disrespect to Sunderland, but to see a manager that's in the top four or five teams in Liga and Shawrams are maybe punching a little bit above their weight, especially relative to budget, but that that's a competitive, you know, above average uh, top tier French side and that coach who is a really young, you know, multilingual coach um possibly going into, you know, England's second division. Uh you look at like Severe Iolo of Lopetegui, where they've come from uh in Spain and, and Emery too in terms of the European pedigree and um, to walk into clubs which aren't directly in Europe in in the Premier League is uh is incredible. And I think that that you just have to sort of enjoy that, don't you? Because that that I think people sometimes don't give managers enough credit for the for the quality that, that they can bring uh, to elevate a team. And sure, it, it might be in a small period where you get it for six months, but you know it's uh, it's it's really really good. Um, and look, I really do sort of hope that, that Aston Villa can just be disrupting more than anything. I've got no real hopes for them of like they don't they don't need to contest a title, but you know just just do something to upset the apple cart, apple cart a little bit. I think can be uh, yeah can be really fun. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting to pull you back to the start of that uh, monologue there. Very much interesting when you speak about English coaches becoming a lot more Eurocentric because if there's ever two better, I suppose, examples of this are two former battle-hardened Premier League centre-halves, Mike Williamson, who up until recently was manager at Gateshead, Ian Everett, who's still manager at Bolton. You know, they play very much, pro- both play progressive, really styles mm. of play of football. And they've both been on record saying they've been heavily influenced by Pep Guardiola. And I mean, to speak about the great man himself, I mean, Manchester City, they've let up 2023, Liam, I suppose, with their trouble win, of course, undoubtedly. Uh, a big turning point to remember was last January, would have been on Wednesday or Thursday nights when they were 2 0 down to Tottenham to come around and win 4 2. I mean, Guardiola and his quest of control, what have you seen? the city since the season that is re- or this year that has really intrigued you well their defence just got better in the Champions League um, they they always score goals you look at when they went out against Spurs a few years back now and you know I think they won the second leg four through an aggregate and Guardiola there was great quotes from him I think it might have been after the Leipzig game I don't know when they won 7-0 and he was saying that it was like the reason we've gone up before is we've just, con- he literally was like, we've conceded stupid goals. We've, you know, and it was that thing with him before, the reason why the box midfield might come in. And he was a bit, he was quite similar, I think, in the Bundesliga from what I've seen with his with his Bayern team of being like, this is such a transitional league. I want the fullbacks inside because I need to control the most dangerous space. Um, look at some of the goals they conceded, I think, Lyon in the in the single leg, uh, knockout game in particular, where they conceded big goals on the breakaway. Sure, this season they've still conceded breakaway goals, but those opportunities are going to be inevitable, I think, at some point with the style that they want to play. So it's it's minimising those and then defending them well enough when you get the opportunity. Um, so that added physicality in the back line, um, I think, really helped as well. I mean, realistically, in the Champions League, they they in the final, sorry, they've been really, really good defensively up until that point. They control games well, but they'd also really sat in against teams. There were times against Bayern Munich in, in the second leg where, you know, they'd have their wingers back down in what was a very Chris Hutton sort of back four that became a back six when your wingers are deep and, you know, going sort of 2v2 um, out in wide spaces. Their press was excellent. Bernardo Silva was was phenomenal, you know, just repeatedly pressing defenders. And again, I was speaking about the outswing pressing earlier on. That was something they did really, really well of knowing when to sort of sit in a block, when to press off the sideways or backwards passes, the bad touches. Um, I think of the Bayern game where they pressed Super Meccano really well. The Leipzig game, they were phenomenal in the press. And there's either the second or third goal, I think they've just scored. And like Haaland's pressing high and... By the time the TV cameras even cut back to the broadcast, they've won the ball back and then they're on the attack and going to score again. Um, and this is something I wrote about back in April and it was sort of linked to Inter as well because Inter have been so good defensively that having that defensive base is a hallmark of the Champions League winning team. So when they got to the final, I was like, they're in their best position ever to win it. And you look now, I think it's four Champions League finals in a row that have been 1-0. One, one I think the last few Europa League finals have been won on penalties that... These are such tight games now because teams are so good defensively and City finally sort of got to that point. From what it sounds there, it sounds as though you're describing a team that's defensively compact, defensively rigid, you know, mm. with clear pressing cues. Why do you think that uh, defensively this is such kind of a theme that we overlook when analysing Guardiola and analysing Manchester City? Well, I think people just like goals, right? And and people like having the ball in possession. It's uh, It's probably a bit of a weird self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense that like and I've always found this a little bit strange about the the Red Bull teams that that do have sort of pressing and high intensity as a big mark of their play that if you're a better possession team well you'll keep the ball more and you'll do more of the thing that you want 
pressing and Ange Postecoglou spoken about this is kind of just a vessel to get the ball back because the better pressing team you are theoretically you should end up doing less pressing because you should win it back more quickly um but look I'd, I'd encourage anyone that wants to sort of get into analysis in any form that I think out of possession stuff at times can be a little bit easier to work with um because players can be more experimental on the ball they can be more reactive but it can be a bit easy to identify identify shapes, identify triggers of when players are moving. Um, and it's a really important part of the game to appreciate that there's there's clubs now that even down at academy level will work with one coach in possession, one coach out of possession for an age group team. So you'll have how many age group teams you've got, double that, um, because it's it's a really important part of the game now. It's part of the England DNA that's existed, you know, since I think 20, 2012, 2013, maybe just after the Triple P. So it's a really, really important aspect now. And I think, you know, Arteta is doing similar with Arsenal now. They're getting those critiques of, oh, you're more boring. And I'm like, that is good from like a coaching perspective. And, and you'll know Connor better than anyone of being exciting and being a bit deserby like sometimes can be great for a neutral. But deserby doesn't doesn't really want that. He's not he's not trying to make it sort of, you know, attacking like that at both ends and really open up. Um, he's just more prepared to let that happen because he wants to dominate games like Postacoglu, who said, I'd rather win 4-3 than 1-0 because he just wants more and more goals. Um, it's just what you're prepared to give up. And Guardiola and Arteta increasingly have been, you know, an awful lot more defensive. You're seeing the same from Arsenal now of, of winning games more narrowly. They, they're phenomenal out of possession. I mean, they pressed Brighton to, to death completely recently the weekend. And I've not seen a, a Deserby team press that well uh, or a Brighton Deserby team press that well, I think probably ever. It's really interesting you bring that up because I was just having flashbacks about the game in mind. But certainly, too, Liam, yeah, as a coach, I mean, it really is counterintuitive, really, when you speak about pressing and you speak about defensive organisation. You know, inherently, there is a level and there is a certain level of appetite for risk involved. And I cast my mind just back to a few days ago, Arsenal Brighton. I'm sure you, as mm. a fan, of course, you would have noticed too, but absolutely fascinating. At times you've seen Lewis Stunk follow Martin Odegaard all the way into the Arsenal penalty box and vice versa with Gabriel Margellas finding Evan Ferguson all the way. And that's just indicative of what was a fascinating watch last Sunday. But also, if we're going to speak about pressing, there's been an awful lot of hybrid strategies out of possession, you know, as coined by... Uh, your own good friend John McKenzie there in the TFO yeah. podcast. Uh, Liam, for hybrid for these hybrid strategies, how best mm -hmm. would you describe them? Well, obviously the word hybrid there is pointing to the fact that it's a, a mix between things. Uh, and I'll, I'll do best to sort of explain how I think John sort of termed it. And it's something you'll see yeah, across City, across Arsenal now, where it's a mix between wanting to press high. Uh, and that can be, you know, that can be sort of, uh, player orientated, ball orientated, um, but often it will be teams generally tend to mix a lot of man for man stuff, and then once that's broken, it's dropping down into a more zonally based, apart from maybe a midfield where you're likely to still man mark, but a more zonally based sort of mid block. So you'll see Arsenal do it a lot of. Sure, you know Gabriel will, will stay tight to Evan Ferguson and, and track him. You know when he drops almost into his own third, but if Brighton get through the press, Arsenal will drop down into that four four two mid block. Odegaard will probably go up top alongside Gabriel Jesus because I think it probably just got their best presser in Odegaard, and then that way when Brighton trying to circulate, they can have a way of you know blocking the passing lanes of condensing the space. Obviously, Villa are a great example of a team that that do the hybrid part really well uh, with their with their really high line and the way that. You know, it's not just high all the time, but the way that that will pinch up and squeeze five yards and suddenly it then catches loads of players offside. So it's really having ways of defending against the first phase of build-up and then the second phase. 
Um, because I guess teams now have to be realistic right of saying, okay, we want to press and turn it over, but if they play through us, we need a plan of how we're going to defend that because we can't expect to get it right every time. So fascinating, though, what that even means for your squad profile and type of player that you have within that system. It's fascinating. Mm. Absolutely. Look, at I think it was it Michael Owen recently saying about it's become ridiculously athletic, and that's that's definitely true, but I think it's mentally it's got to be a more difficult game to play as well because things are moving so much quicker. Um, players have to be really smart. I mean, you'll see you know, even strikers who people don't, often associate with having big defensive workloads or having to do an awful lot of scanning without the ball because they need to see, okay, you know, there's a great phrase that Sean Dyche uses, uh, like north side with, in terms of where he wants his strikers to stand. If he wants them, you know, in front of the pivot or between the, the pivot player and the goal, um, he'd say, I want them north side. If he wants them behind them, he'd say south side. And okay, if you're in front of that number four, well, you've got to keep looking left and right because if he slides five, 10 yards either way to receive a pass and you're stood still, well, then you're not doing your job very well. So, um, it's yeah, it's really fascinating to watch, and one of the reasons why I try to watch games back as well, or you know, go back through clips and stuff, because trying to spot it all in real time can be really, really difficult. You're trying to sort of assess a base shape straight away, or see okay, what does the strategy look like? Who's going what? Who's going with who? Um, where's it sort of happening? Uh, where does it start and stop? So it's uh, yeah, it's quite something to try and pick apart. It really is interesting too, and it's fascinating how you're seeing some of the top teams suffer at the highest form. You know, if not having, I would say, access for not having clear game management principles were related to their hybrid strategy, case in point. And it's a very unfair, I would say, case specified to Newcastle United, given their injury availability mm. of late. But there's a few games that cast my mind back to, uh, such as, for instance, the AC Milan game, where with a depleted squad at home, you're 1-0 up and you lose the game by a goal. But mm -hmm. to sustain what they were doing for 90 minutes you know, with that high press was always going to be very, very difficult, especially with the amount of work that necessitates Eddie Howe's eights and that pressing plan. But then also you reflect back in the Caribou Cup quarterfinal recent against Chelsea and you go a goal up, but you sit back into low mid-block for a whole game like sitting ducks. I mean, where's mm -hmm. the fine goal between between that one? Yeah, I guess it's my big take now is that squad depth is more important than it's ever been because I, I wrote about the Newcastle game against PSG where... They obviously drew very late on and was like to to not win a game uh, and to have qualification taken sort of out of their hands in that way was was really really harsh. But when you look at the shots that they gave up, um, and they were really good in the first half in Paris, I thought they pressed really high, really well. But as you say, they're really you know, their press is great, but it's a really narrow one. Their wingers come you know edge of the, onto the eighteen yard box. Sorry, either side of the striker, the wingers generally are set to press two centre backs if it's a back four, and um, and then you're as you mentioned about the number eights, you're getting them making these you know huge diagonal sprints out to press the fullback, which Joe Linton in particular is just phenomenal at you know eating up that ground so quickly. But you can't do that for a full ninety minutes, and it's a, I guess the thing now that teams and sports scientists have to work at in terms of pressing strategies because. You need to find a way to play the game 60 to 90 minutes when that fatigue starts kicking in, and especially because Newcastle have had so many injuries um, and probably not quite yet got the depth that, that Howe wants, even though the, the squad quality in terms of starting eleven is really, really high. Um, but Alexander Isaac sort of spoke about it afterwards. I think he said, look, we, we dropped in and defended a bit too early. Uh, and, and that was sort of my piece was that, look, they, they went to Milan and... We're fortunate, I think, to a degree to come out, you know, with a point there that Pope made some really great saves. I think Rafael Leal missed a few chances that they face a lot of shots. They face a lot of shots at PSG as well. Um, 
and at some point if you are you know relying on teams missing tap-ins and, and not scoring goals then okay the way you actually end up drawing the game might be unfair or, or not fair quote unquote but if you're giving up that much then at some point it's probably going to go um but as I've mentioned that, you know, it's it's an easier problem to identify than it is to solve because you're then saying, OK, can you get the squad depth in? Um, it would also maybe be a bit too much to say, look, just promote certain academy players because you want to do that, as you know, at the right time for the player and in as optimal an environment as possible. And, you know, chucking on a 17 or 18 year old who's not kicked a ball in the Premier League into a Champions League knockout game or not knockout game sorry but a group stage game uh, a way to you know France's top team and saying right I need you to to get out and sort of press um that Krafakimi relentlessly for for 30 minutes isn't necessarily doable um so it's yeah it's it's a balance clubs are going to have to to try and strike now it's interesting to see who's kind of mastering these game management principles at such a finite level like you look for the latest kind of breed that's coming through of young coaches and my mind is directly taken to one Francisco Ferrioli, someone I know you've reviewed extensively this season at Nice. I mean, as of speaking, they were one of the very few teams that were remaining unbeaten in their respective league. That's now gone. But yeah. you look at the tally this season, they played 17 games, scored 19, you know, conceded eight, which necessitates yeah. maybe the games are a little bit dull for the neutral. But could you take us maybe through some of he, his key principles out of possession at Nice? Sure. I mean, I think I think Farrell has been great. I didn't catch him when he was managing in Turkey, um, but I think from there, his his teams were a lot more open. Um, he'll get Lord as sort of a a Deserby disciple because he, he was a goalkeeper coach and, and an analyst for him at Sassuolo. Um, but as we were speaking about Deserby earlier, Farrelli really is principally at the opposite end of the spectrum. Now, I don't mean he's ultra defensive. Um, he just seems to desire a lot more control. It's not about throwing everything forwards um, and, and risking it to keep scoring more and more goals. A lot of their build-up looks the same of a back four. It's a 4-3-3 in attack a lot of the time with, with one defensive midfielder. But at times, that'll be seven players in the defensive third and three on the halfway line. Um, he's got a really good front three. Uh, and Telen Moffi, who's a, a great 1v2, number nine, Um Again, sort of has periods where at times it looks a bit better in transition, um, isn't always a great sort of penalty box or low block sort of striker. Sorry, um, Jeremy Boga, who people, you know, obviously Premier League fans might remember, plays on the left, uh, and Gaetan Laborde uh, on the right is a bit more of like a a wide forward, um, whereas Boga's a, a bit more of a dribbler. But they tend to to build up quite similar to a Deserby team, but are sort of quite prepared to to go along from the goalkeeper and look. Marcel Boga, uh, their goalkeeper, I think this is his. He's, I'm not sure how old he is. He might be 24, 25, but it's his first sort of season of, of playing regular minutes as, as a number one. He'd, he'd been at Chelsea, he'd been at PSG and, and been a backup. So to, you know, it says a lot from a young manager, I think. Sure, Ligue 1 gets its, its critiques for not always being ultra sort of competitive, but it's a league that young players come into to develop. And OK, he biologically, or chronologically, sorry, might not be young, but his footballing age isn't very high if he's coming in now and being entrusted um, you know, by, by Farioli to, to build out and to play that way. And defensively, I think it sort of shows their their approach. They're a great example of a team with a hybrid approach that will often lock on and press man for man. They can be a bit weird in bringing uh, Laborde, who's who's their right winger, often actually uh, into the middle to make a front two um, when they play up against the back four and then requiring a lot from their right back to sort of jump to the opposition left back then end up with sort of three on the halfway line. And they've got Jean-Claire Tadiba, who's a phenomenal ball player and you know, got a really good athletic profile as well. He's quite similar to, to William Saliba, I suppose, as someone that you can trust to run backwards towards his own goal when he'll just eat up anything that, that goes into the channels. But then when Nice's press gets split, um, they drop into 
you'd think almost a four five one from a four three three, but they actually drop in their DM uh into the back line and, and make a five four one. So they add that, you know, we're talking about plus ones earlier in terms of uh in terms of build up, but they add that one into the back line at times to mark the striker, but it also gives them, you know, more of a presence in defending crosses. They're prepared to then say, Okay, you split us, have organized control possession. I think these games tend to be and they're personally I enjoy them on a tactical level and maybe for people starting out they can be a bit easier to watch because they can be a bit slower so you can spot things a bit more easily um but they tend to be you know games of real settled possession punctuated then by mistakes or turnovers and suddenly the game sort of clicks into life it's it's a bit tournament football like I suppose of uh not it's not at all lucky in tactical quality it can just be very slow and then suddenly something happens and you know it all pops into life Really interesting too. I mean, if you speak about Aston Villa in the Premier League and obviously you're speaking of Nice and League on, it really does seem to be kind of the year or in fact the season of the underdog. And I think that uh, view is kind of even more preempted by the success of Spalletti's Napoli this yeah. earlier on this season. If you look at what Girona under Michel is doing now in La Liga, if you look at Xabi Alonso's Leverkusen, it really is a season of disruption. Mm. However, speaking Stuttgart of... Stuttgart too, yeah. Stuttgart, sorry, as well. And Honus Terry is a very, very young coach. Um, speaking with Matthew Clements recently at the FIFA training centre, I mean, his art mm. views that this kind of stems from, it's a follow-on really from last year's World Cup, the Winter World mm. Cup. I remember we were previewing that as well, but, um, you know, speaking of more teams now attacking through time and not space, mm. really interesting on the continent, just watching so much disruption from these young protagonists and coaches now. Yeah, I think it's phenomenal. And look, this this will be the, the next generation of coaches, you, you hope, and should theoretically sort of uh, only get better. Um, and I imagine there's, you know, p- parts of them that might have game models or styles that more closely resemble the current game just because they played closer to it um, and maybe have more experience with, with analysis and more sort of broad tactical things. I think you hear a lot of players. I feel like they're the generation of players that sort of said, the academy players coming through now have had a, have had analysis sort of all their life, whereas these players are like we've sort of had it in the last ten years that might not always have, have been used to it. But um, no, I, I think it's great, and that's obviously been it's been a big criticism of the Bundesliga with with Bayern's dominance uh, happening in Liga as well. Even though you've you've kind of had periods where there's always um, sort of an under underdog at some point where you've had had Monaco have had a spell, um, sort of sort of most recently, but PSG you know tend to tend to control the league there. City, I think, has been. It's been great for sort of variety of winners, but that's also come because Juventus have had big off the field problems, right? It's not necessarily been a pure sort of tactical quality thing. Um, but then it was good last season to see so many Italian teams, you know, go deep in European competitions, albeit none of them ended up with any sort of silverware. Um, so I think it's football's probably ripe for it now when you look at sort of having seven or so years to sort of Guardiola Klopp, things get sort of very settled. That it's, it's, yeah, it's, I think it's the perfect time for things to come in and, and shake things up a bit. And I'd have to take you back to a recent article which you penned about Arsenal when you were speaking about their goal threat on the Athletic. It's coming from mm. a multitude of different sources. And I think a good case study, if you're not already drawn to them, of course, Liam, is Baron Leverkusen. Because looking mm. through the stats ahead of this morning's podcast, absolutely insane. 25 games this season, 22 wins, 3 draws, 0 defeats, 81 goals scored. And if you look at how those goals are kind of spread out throughout the team, you have striker Victor Boniface with 16, Florian Virtus next with 10. And you have mm. the two wing-backs, Alex Grimaldo with Fine. eight, Jeremy Fringbaum with seven. Crazy. Yeah. 
It is. I actually caught a bit of Leverkusen at the back end of last season because um, a few people have flagged them to me to watch and I actually put them in a piece of, of tactical teams that people should watch coming up for, for this season. Um, look, I, they were, I think they were the one that really stuck out of them. I think I put in five or six and there are a few that didn't do quite as well. Um, but yeah, they're, they're flying wingbacks the whole time. Frimpong in particular, again, I think these aren't, you know, Grimaldo as well, players that have been so attack minded um, that then suit that way again with the more conventional box midfield that want those uh, sort of authentic tens and floor inverts is you know a delight because he's had I think a very serious ACL injury so to come back and and play the way that he does is is fascinating and just quite fulfilling I think because you hate for injuries to, to ruin a career but yeah their their attack their their passing um their combinations in central areas their ability to sort of hit teams out wide and attack in various ways is, is amazing so yeah if people do anything absolutely watch them some Leverkusen. and they are they are great fun you would wonder too what is actually on the cards for Chevy Alonso I mean this is one I think it's his second it's second or third season in full-time uh, management he's yeah. at the start of a burning career we look at the influences of Benitez Mourinho and Pep mm. certainly bodes well it does oh it absolutely does I mean look they're probably lining him up for for the Real Madrid job aren't they if, if Ancelotti moves on but um no, it's, it's then you, you just don't want to rush people like that, do you? You almost want to enjoy it as much as you can before you sort of yeah, fast track these people to, to the top. Too, I can reflecting upon in 2023, Liam, has been the proliferation of a coach's mythology. And suffice to say, within that, not being too much of a drop off, because we speak about Chabi Alonso just there and now. I mean, he's had you know, negotiated a tenuous period, period between Bundesliga football and Europa League. You know, every Thursday and Sunday, the Zerbi's done similar at Brighton. Unai Emery's done something similar at Villa, and it's been it's been kind of really intriguing for me to see that, despite heavily rotated size, there seems to be little to no drop off in terms of quality. So for me, I think with one eye ahead on twenty twenty four, do we see there being kind of more bang for your buck in with respect to a manager's? capabilities being more even exaggerated on the grander scale because you look back in previous years and there are studies out saying that a manager is only 10 to 15 percent i think this figure was quoted in terms of a team success but i'd say heading into the new year with an even more what's your list with even more football with even more longer games that a manager has probably never been more as important Oh, absolutely, and look, that's because I'd, the only thing I challenge on that is you use the word manager, because I'd say that they're not—they're not managers, are they? There, these are coaches in the purest form. I can't remember the club before I saw, but there was a someone who got appointed to an EFL club recently, Michael and said Hale. very specifically, "That's the one." Sorry, thank yeah. you. Yeah, he said, um, "I'm I'm a head coach. I'm I'm not here to manage. Um, that these are people that know how to develop players, or know how to develop people, know how to develop teams, um, and that's because that they can." implement and adapt these these tactical structures they can put on sessions to you know improve technique um i wouldn't say teach new skills as person do everything but it's to, to refine stuff uh to maximize strengths and they can now couple that with the sports science with the analysis to know when to drop players in to take them out and um, how to adapt based on the opposition that, that they're going to face so that's that's become a, a huge part of it now for sure um and i agree with you especially if you want to compete on all those different fronts now you you need to be adaptable is, is the big thing i've taken away from it that having a, a clear identity is really important but there will come a sticking point and it will work for sort of maybe 
80 maybe 90 percent you feel really really good at the time but it's when do you make those tiny subtle tweaks and go a little bit different like even city for their all their box midfield play in the champions league final you know pushed john stones into an ultra aggressive position and then he went and clocked what was it six out of six successful dribbles had the most i think since messi um in a champions league final which is you know if you're only behind messi in a stat then you're, you're doing pretty well um and that was because Inter plays such a strong and, and solid 3-5-2 that, that drops into a 5-3-2. Um, so having those principles, but being adaptable in a way that allows you to develop players in the team, um, I'm in complete agreement. Yeah, if you want to be as competitive as you can uh, and win multiple trophies and finish up in the league, you've got no other choice now. And it's been really interesting too, kind of, you see the return of the number nine, you know, albeit mm. briefly has kind of pre-entered a rise back with respect to the goals being more evenly distributed. Speak of a, I would say, an offset consequence of the box midfield being you want to funnel an awful lot of play out wide, which a positive unintended consequence of that has been the return of the dribbler or the winger one versus one getting by on the outside or taking a man on yeah. his inside. I mean, tactically, obviously, we spoke about it a lot today with respect to the box, but respect to out-of-possession strategies. What do you think is the next kind of logical evolution and... What trends do you expect to see in 2024? Yeah, it's 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 difficult to, to chart. I mean, the, the one thing that you mentioned there with the winger is the amount of wingers that are having success now and being a two-way winger. I'm thinking Karim Matoma is, is making a career off of it, of, of those ball and dribbles. Jeremy Doku is doing it in France and is now, you know, people loving him in the Premier League. Armand Loriente is another one who's at, is at Sassuolo. These players that are really, really quick but can go both ways and... I really wouldn't be surprised to see the return. And Pep did it, didn't he, a few seasons back of the the return to the, the right side of winger, to, to the left footer off the left. I think he had Sane, didn't he, and then Sterling off the right. So even if that might be a case of uh, coaches now sort of switching wingers more during games and going, you know what, for sort of five, ten minutes, you can um, have a go, go on the outside. I wonder if the fear is it just makes you more predictable that if you can at least cut in on your favoured foot and then your backup is to go to the byline, um, then you keep fullbacks guessing the whole time. Um, I think Luis Diaz against Everton was a great example when they went down to, to 10 men. And, you know, especially with the amount of red cards you're now seeing and having to adapt to to playing with a man up or with a man down. And that, again, might be a second answer to your question of, of finding ways to play in alternative game states. Um, yeah, you find the space gets so condensed in the middle and you go, OK, well, where's the space left? It's on the outside. Having someone and being that two-footed winger that can go on the left and, you know, if you're a right-footed cutting in um, is, is massively important. I think that's a key facet of a two that we've overlooked. I mean, what are the key spaces in which you want to arrive? Are you playing against the back four? Are you playing against the back five? Are you playing against the low mid block? Because it's been interesting years ago, I was reflecting upon this with a friend recently. You know, the days of Sani and Sterling playing, you know, natural width on their favourite yeah. side is, you know, it's long gone. You look at the Manchester City now against the low block, one of my favourite solves, you know, having a wrong footed winger on the wrong side, but then having the same footed 10 on their yeah. side, so you could have a left footer like Bernardo on the right and mm. Brian making those channel runs into the 10 space and vice versa on the left. You know, have so many different ways to arrive mm. and kill the opponent. So that's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch for in 2024. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that that's become one of my favourite moves really is is, uh, is is the seam run style that the 10 going between the, the fullback or the wingback and, and the centre-back and, and City do that so well and look it's even to the point where you can you can predict it but you can't always stop it and uh, you know they were pick I know they drew one all of the end but they were picking Liverpool apart with it and it's it's become you know 
one of those moves now that I think is is what football's now becoming reduced to again in a good way is it's a collection of, you know, it's a game within a game, a 2v2 or a 3v3. Can you make a 2v1 here? You know, can you get a plus one in that situation? Um, so yeah, they're, they're great for that. Liam, it's been absolutely fantastic anyways to have this chat and I suppose take some stock at the end of what's been a manic and, you know, equally enjoyable football year. I think there's been a fair fewer exotic journeys on podcasts taking you from Gateshead to Nice. Yes, exactly. Well, I thank you very much for having me. An absolute pleasure.